If you live in North America, it's likely that you've heard tales about Bigfoot, and if you're an 80s kid like me, you probably think of Harry and the Hendersons or grainy video footage on unsolved mysteries. But these stories have deep roots in indigenous cultural stories, and tales of human-like creatures covered in hair are told all around the world. But the story we're telling today is one where monsters seem much more human than cryptid. This is the story of a time when a 43-year-old man takes a 16-year-old named Teresa Beer hiking and returns without her. His explanation? That Bigfoot took her. This is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. This episode features actor and comedian Lauren Ash. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, everyone listening. Um, Vanessa, did you see that thing going around on TikTok a few weeks ago about men and the Roman Empire? No, I avoid TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) I do. You only avoid TikTok because... The algorithm is not algorithming for you. It, it doesn't work for me. Some might say, Vanessa, that the algorithm is doing its job and that you are actually interested in recipes about bacon and pimple popping. I am not. And if I am, it's like very, very deep in my subconscious being. I don't know. The algorithm knows, Vanessa. The algorithm doesn't like me. Okay. So, hmm. What happens to the Roman Empire thing to fill Vanessa in is that a cis straight woman asks her male partner how often he thinks about the Roman Empire and his response is like every day or several times a day. For real. For real. Okay. And so someone was like, well, what's like the lady equivalent of the Roman Empire? And so I saw a great one. It was the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Are you out there thinking about the Bermuda Triangle? So, I mean, yeah, there was a moment a couple weeks ago where I did. Think about the Bermuda Triangle. Think about the Bermuda Triangle. And I don't know why. I think it was when you and I were discussing the BTK killer. And I was trying to figure out what the BTK stood for. And I was like, maybe it's like the Bermuda Triangle killer. And then you told me what it was. And I have not recovered ever since. No, it is not that at all. Um <laughs> I do not think about the Bermuda Triangle, but I do I do think often, and maybe it's because I live on Lake Champlain, but I think about Champy <laughs> quite often. I love that. Right? I, I mean, I love uh, that for me too. I love that for you. Yeah. I should, I will start thinking about him more too, or her. I mean, we can be like really gender neutral here. It, they. 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 I really appreciate all Champy champies if you're in vermont it's champ no champy's cuter champy is cuter um, vermont champy come yeah. on so if you, if if our listeners don't know um lake champlain has historically had long had stories about a lake creature it's like a loch ness type creature loch ness adjacent loch yeah. ness cousin um so i think about that so Today's story, it touches on a man who he is not thinking about the Bermuda Triangle or the Roman Empire or Champy, but he spends a lot of time thinking about 
Bigfoot. And his story is going to intersect with a missing teenager, Teresa Beer. Okay. So before we begin, we'd like to issue a content warning. On She Goes by Jane, we often touch on hard and difficult subjects, but today's episode does include mention of sexual abuse and assault, and also we talk about child abuse in several forms. So the reason that we're talking about Bigfoot and that's going to be part of this episode is because it's one of the only reasons that 16-year-old Teresa Ann Beard's disappearance is known or really reaches the media. And that's part of the story of what happens to her when she goes missing in 1987. But I also don't want it to just become like a story that we're only talking about for that reason. Right. Because there was a, a young woman involved. What are you, where are you going with this Bigfoot thing? I don't even know what to say because I don't know where we're going. Like, how does one respond to Bigfoot? To this. So before we get to the Bigfoot angle in the first place, because I know that we're all probably wondering why. I'm wondering. Why? So I bet everybody else is too. Right. So we're going to go way back into Teresa's childhood in California. So before Teresa is born, her father, who's David, who's in the military, meets his wife, Shirley, and they get married and have their first child, whose name is Yolanda. David is in Vietnam, and Shirley is left back in the States taking care of Yolanda. They are living with one of David's relatives, and subsequently, when he gets back, they have two more children. They have Vicky, and then they have Teresa, who was born on April 16th, 1971. Now, one of the things that I do to prepare for every episode that we do is I will go back into newspapers and try to find information about our missing person before they went missing so that we know about who they are. So if we take something like um, Mary Shotwell Little, whose case we covered a few weeks ago, and we look at her stories, it was story after story of her high school academics, her college experience, her being a bridesmaid. But if we take someone like Teresa, there is only one single newspaper article that I was able to find about her. Like through her whole childhood? Through her whole childhood. So just okay, just one, one item. So one she's item. stayed quieter than Mary. Yeah. So her childhood is not like documented in newspapers at all. And this is like this one single picture. And I just, we're going to include it on our website just because it's really this moment for me. It's she's about six months old and she's in a like wagon with her cat Rags. Um, my childhood cat's name was Rags. And it just mentions how much she doesn't like the cat. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just think like, this is like a moment that's captured and I think it's interesting because, you know, subsequently, Teresa's life just takes uh, some strong detours. Okay. So that was the newspaper article was the cat? Well, it was a, like a, it was a photo of her. And that was the only one just from six months old. Yeah. And she was 16 when she disappeared. And she was 16 when she was disappeared. And even her disappearance gets very minimal mentioning in the papers. So a lot of what we're talking about today comes from an author. His name is Jay O'Connell. He did interviews, but also looked at police reports of the time. But if we're looking at straight newspaper mentions of her disappearance, it's very few. So we're primarily using meth, murder, and Bigfoot as our- What? Did you start with meth? I did start with meth. 
Okay, Meth, Murder, and Bigfoot. And Bigfoot. That's the name of the book? Yes. Okay. So now, now I'm curious about where this story is going to go. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when the oldest of the daughters, Yolanda, is born, it's pretty clear that Shirley, the mom, is not up for caring for her. And their father, David, is worried about the way Shirley is treating Yolanda. He asks his grandmother, so Yolanda's great-grandmother, to care for her. And so largely, Yolanda lives with her great-grandmother. Now, Yolanda reports that when Teresa was about three, Shirley broke Teresa's leg by placing it through the slats of the crib and twisting Teresa's leg until it broke. On purpose? On purpose. That's awful. She was also beaten so severely that some of her ribs were broken. This is a terrible childhood. Completely. It's like no longer safe for Teresa and her sister Vicky to stay with their mom. Obviously. Now, Yolanda is still living with her great-grandmother on her dad's side, but Vicky and Teresa can't go there. Do we know why she can't go with Yolanda? So the great-grandmother at this point is is quite older. She's already taking care of Yolanda, taking on two more kids. Seems like it's probably a stretch for her. Right. They are placed in a foster placement, Vicky and Teresa. And it seems like, from what we can tell, that time with that foster placement actually goes quite well. Now... Their dad, David, he is no longer with Shirley. Shirley has taken off and gone to another state. And their father has remarried and wants custody back. David does. David does. Okay. He is now married, and you're going to have to bear with me in this. He is now married to this woman named Margie Richmond, who had been married to Shirley's half brother okay i'm (laughs) so that's how they know each other that's how they know each other okay okay so margie and the half brother of shirley's are no longer together and she and david are now together they're an item yes vicky and Teresa are placed back with david and his new wife it seems as though things are not going well in that household either. And so before long, they end up back with their great-grandmother, who's taking care of Yolanda, which we already know this is like a stressful situation because she's older and trying to take care of now three children. Right, and she didn't seem to agree to this in the first place the first time, but maybe now because the girls are older. Right, and so what happens though is the Pretty much immediately, I guess, Vicky runs away from home, which leaves Teresa there. Do we know how old the girls are at this point? Not specifically. Okay. So in comes the half-uncle, Shirley's half-brother. So this is Margie's ex-husband? Right. Okay. So Margie's ex-husband, Shirley's half-brother, the girl's half-uncle. And his name is John Richmond, and he pushes for custody of Teresa. Just Teresa? Well, Vicky's run away. Vicky's gone. Like, we didn't get her back. I don't think so. 
But he definitely pushes for custody of Teresa. Okay. There's some speculation that he does this largely because he's hoping for income for being a foster parent or guardian of Teresa. John Richmond is, as far as I can tell, a character. He is known by the neighborhood, we're in Fresno, California, as Blind Johnny. Is he actually blind? Well, there is some debate about this. So he is a storyteller. So in some stories, he says that he is blind and he got that way by playing Russian roulette. There are other stories that he, there was a self-inflicted gunshot situation after his girlfriend left him for Bing Crosby's son. Wow, the story, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. Or he might not be vision impaired at all. Okay. I'm curious to see where you're going with this. Right. Okay. He is already well known by police for fencing goods, which is the taking of stolen property and the reselling of it. But I don't know. Somehow this man is deemed a fit parental guardian for Teresa. So he actually gets custody of her? He does get custody of her. And he still got custody even with like the whole Russian roulette story and criminal record and all? Right. I mean, at this point... It really seems as though there are not a lot of good options for placement in in the family. Um, so maybe that's why that happened. I'm not sure. But he was selected as her guardian and she moves in with him. In addition to this, Blind Johnny or John Richmond, he has a new wife and he has sons with that wife. And I don't want to shame anyone for sex work, but she is a sex worker. And they often have Teresa watching the young children while she's doing her work. Also, sometimes she takes Teresa with her to, like, watch kids while she's doing it, which places Teresa in a lot of unhealthy and unsafe situations. Right. That's not a good situation. In addition to that... John Richmond, the half-uncle, he has what is described as a, and I hate this phrase, teenage girlfriend. And that's how she's described, teenage girlfriend. But I want to make clear that, like, what we have is a 42-year-old man, John Richmond, who is preying on an underage girl. On a child. A child, yes. I'm not going to say her name. She provides evidence later that helps with Teresa's story. Does the wife know about the child? It is unclear, but it, this just seems like a chaotic, unsafe living situation. Yeah, it does. Now, it seems as though Teresa tells her great-grandmother, her sisters are also aware that there is sexual abuse and assault happening in the home. Not just from John Richmond to Teresa, but also maybe some of his friends as well. This is a horrible situation. Right. Adding in another layer... Teresa has cognitive delays. Though she's 16, her understanding of the world is a few years younger. And academically, she's older than her classmates. She's in the ninth grade, but she's like receiving assistance. So we have that as well. Okay. She, is she getting any special help with any of this? It seems the school has provided specialized education classes for that. Okay. But, you know... There's nothing really assisting her with her her home life. Right. And it doesn't sound like the greatest home life if you're already struggling. Right. 
Now, her life is about to intersect with a grown man who is 43 in 1987, the year that this is taking place. I'm going to pause here. We're going to call him the suspect for the rest of the episode. Uh, we make a point of not mentioning the names of suspects or perpetrators because at the end of the episode, we want you to remember one name, and that's Teresa Beer. So this man, this suspect, which is what we're going to call him, he seems to be at the very least an acquaintance of Teresa's uncle. And he convinces Teresa that he knows a lot about Bigfoot. So he's our Bigfoot fan. He is the Bigfoot fan in this story. Okay. It's hard to emphasize just how much he's into Bigfoot. Like, he frequently goes looking for them. Big feet. Big, big foot. Foots. Foots. Big foots. Big feet. Big foots. Big foots. Maybe they're plural already. Big foot. Is Bigfoot plural? Already? It could be. Like deer and deer. Right. And he says that on these journeys, he has seen them frequently. So frequently, in fact, that he has come to a place in which he can communicate with them. Is this where the meth comes in? It's probably where the meth comes in. He even took photos and he claims that they depict the creature and he went to like a local university and was showing faculty members there trying to get like confirmation I guess, like, not necessarily confirmation. He's not there to say, like, do you think this is Bigfoot? He just wants someone to say, like, yes. The university professor he goes to see says, like, honestly, they looked like shadows and rocks, not Bigfoot. Bigfoot. It's probably important to mention that California is getting an influx of meth in the 1980s and that our suspect partook in that, so much so that his family began to worry that he was losing touch with reality. I wonder why they're thinking that. Right. Hmm. Equally important, though, it's important to bring up that the this belief in Bigfoot is not necessarily just specific to him. You know, there have been many indigenous cultures who believe in this and have a cultural history and stories about Bigfoot particularly in the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada. And this kind of region of California, those stories are less prevalent. But we do have some contemporary stories, which I want to take a pause here because I think this sort of gives some context. You know the actress, Ali Sheedy? Is she from The Breakfast Club? Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. She is in Shaver Lake, California, which is in the region that we're actually discussing right now. And it's 1985, so a few years earlier. And she says that she was like out sunbathing in the mountains and heard a noise and looked up and saw like glowing red eyes from the forest and believes it was Bigfoot. Where do I go with this? Like, I don't want to like be insulting like Bigfoot lovers and meth enthusiasts, but I don't want to discount it as like a Native American belief because I think that's cool in that sense. And I like it in that realm, but I just don't like it for this. I don't know where to go. What are you expecting of me? <laughs> um, wow. Okay. If it helps at all, Rob Lowe also says that he saw a ape-like creature in the Ozarks in the 2000s. Okay, so... So let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt and say that this could happen. That there there might be Bigfoot out there. Right. Right. Because, I mean, do we know for sure that there isn't? 
No. I mean, I like to think that there's Champy in there. Right. You want to think of as Champy. I think there was a moment when I was like eight or nine where I really wished Bigfoot were real. It was probably around like after watching like Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, Harry and the Hendersons. Um, so, I mean, let's let's say that there is a, something out there. How does that affect the story? Well, that would affect the story quite a bit. That this man can communicate with them is another key point, right? Like, Right. So, I mean, maybe having a sighting once in a while, like Rob Lowe, he had like one sighting, right? In his yes. whole lifetime. It's like a rare like occurrence. No, but this man But is... for this guy to be like repeatedly seeing them and now communicating with them. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it yet. So anyway, this middle-aged man who has no business meeting up with teenagers does indeed meet up with Teresa at some point in this timeline. He convinces Teresa of his special connection with Bigfoot and that they, the suspect and Teresa, they should go looking for him. I can see how that would be appealing for a teenager or, I mean, she's still also a child, to want to go on this big adventure looking for a Bigfoot. Like, that that sounds fun. Right. But now this 43-year-old guy yeah, should not maybe be the one going on this adventure with her without other teenagers. Yeah, you know, I personally make it a practice never to go into the, the woods, but I can totally <laughs> respect her decision to do so. Okay. I, I do like the woods, but with appropriate company. I'm a maintained trails safety lighting kind of kind of girl do you bring a granola bar in your pocket yes yes <laughs> you have to bring snacks <laughs> so teresa's excited she even mentions to her classmates they have come up with this plan and that they're going to go look for bigfoot the plan is that he is going to stop by her uncle's house around the time that she goes to school and he's just going to offer her a ride to school. So on June 1st, 1987, he does just that. So they don't even let the uncle in on what they're going to go do? No. Sounds shady. So despite living precariously, Teresa's school immediately calls her Uncle John to check on her when she doesn't come to school. And I don't know, I'm a child of the 80s, and I'm reasonably sure that my school district never called when I was absent from school. Okay. Yeah, I I think mine did. The one time I skipped school in like seventh grade. Were you found out? I was found out. Yeah, it was the situation. We'll be back in a moment. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. (sighs) 
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. John, he seems to be one of those like we handle our own business kind of guys. And so when they say she hasn't come to school, his answer isn't like, oh, she should be there. She last left with this guy. He says, oh, she's homesick. Why would he do that? Because like the school doesn't have any business in his business kind of thing. But they're being good. They're, they're, you know, trying to make sure their kids are counted. Right. But like if you're coming from this from like a perspective of like someone who is has complicated relationships with authority. Right. right. So yeah, he very much knows that she left the house with this 40 something year old meth addict. Mm, nice. We do have know that once she left her uncle's, Teresa was seen a few times. The suspect stops by his daughter's place. She's just a few years older than Teresa. His son also reports seeing his father with a girl who fits that description. The son will later tell an investigator on the case that she didn't appear at the time that he saw her to have been hurt at all. So finally, at 9.30 p.m. on June 1st, so the evening that Teresa has disappeared, her uncle is finally like, hey, something must be up, and he calls the Fresno police to report her missing. He didn't try calling his friend first? He did seem to have called around his various contacts and like based on kind of the some of the stuff that people were saying, he was like, ah, that seems a little suspicious. So finally, he's doing the right thing. Right. Okay. Now, detectives start looking for the suspect. He has some mining claims about an hour or so away. So they alert the forest rangers, the state police, the area authorities to be on the lookout for him and his Monte Carlo that he's driving. Do we know where they were headed? So they don't, but they do know that he has connections in this other area. So they're just putting the word out to be on the lookout for his vehicle in case it's seen up there. Okay. So we don't know where they are yet. We're just looking. Looking. They, meaning the authorities, they spot his car on June 5th. So we're a full four days out from when Teresa was last seen. Wow. The car is parked at a trailer park in this tiny town called North Fork, which is kind of seen as... um, It's a frequent destination for people who are heading up to hike Shut-Eye Peak. And when police spot his car, the newspaper reports say that no one was around, so they left and came back later. And by the time they did, his car was gone. Okay. So, okay. And so we don't know if his car was there for the entire four days. It seems unlikely now that he's, it seems like he's just coming and going. It's possible. So they, we know that they spot it this one time, kind of look around. He's not, like, visibly present. They're like, well, wait, we'll come back later. I have a couple questions. Yes. How far is this peak from 
Chase's home. So we're about an hour's drive from Fresno to this area. Okay, and then and then do we know how long it takes to hike in and out of Shut Eye Peak? I'm just trying to figure out if it's like a, you know, one of those ones where you, you're expecting to camp along the way or if it's like an in and out in one day situation. So Shut Eye is part of the Sierra National Forest. It supposedly has a great view. It has a fire tower on top. It's considered a steep hiking trail. It's like not something that I would do, you know, mostly because it goes... No beginners. No beginners. If you hike from North Fork where his car was found, which is kind of like the beginning of it, and go up, it is a 13-mile out and back. 13-mile round trip. Hike. Hike, but we're in really hard to navigate terrain so it's going to take considerably longer than just walking so all trails which in my estimation historically underestimates the the difficulty and length of time maybe it's because i'm a bad hiker but they say it's about a six and a half hour hike okay so it's not like a days long hike where they would be going in and camping and staying it should be an in and out in one day type of deal yeah so someone who's you know got some efficiencies at hiking that is like someone who can speak to bigfoot and is probably really good at navigating the wilderness yeah so six and a half hours okay what we later find out is that the suspect is in north fork he is visiting his friend dorothy who lived nearby dorothy says that when she spoke to the subject he seemed delusional and maybe high but he starts spinning her stories about a girl that he had to leave on the mountain and a satanic cult and that this is what happened. She is like, this man is high, likely. Mm-hmm. And so she just thinks that he's he's experiencing delusions and doesn't really like think much of it. But that's where he is at that moment. He leaves Dorothy's place and he heads back home to his mother's house. So he's appearing so high that Dorothy's not even believing that there is a girl involved at all. I mean, there's a, he basically says there's like a satanic cult that has. Yeah, where, how, where, at what point do we go into the satanic cult part of this story? You know, layers, Vanessa. You're constantly surprising me with these things. So on June 10th, the suspect's son, remember he had seen what he we believe is Teresa earlier on June 1st. So on June 10th, the suspect's son calls police and he alerts them to the fact that the suspect has returned and he is staying at his mom's house. So the suspect's mom's house. And how many days has passed now? So Teresa is last seen on June 1st and now we're at June 10th. Wow. Okay. And we're also five days out from him being at Dorothy's place. He's hiding out in a room there. The family, different family members are worried about him and his safety based on his behavior. He seems pretty erratic. They know that he's been having issues with drugs, so there's a lot going on there. So please bring him in for questioning. He tells them, I don't know what you're talking about. I dropped Teresa off at school. Lies. Right. Because the police are like, my dude, we know that that's not true. Right. And he's like, well, like, okay, first of all, I don't call her Teresa. I call her Sam because she looks like a Sam to me. And I drove her around and she told me about her childhood. And then I dropped her off at school where she met up with a blonde friend. 
That's quite the story. Mm-hmm. And the police were like, yeah, no. <laughs> Who just calls somebody something that they think they look like? Right. Oh, my God. Well, actually, I did that once. No, you didn't. I did. What did you do? I, it's awkward childhood past. Anyway, <laughs> so the police are like, you know, no, we do not believe you. We saw your car in the Sierras. We know you were there. And he's like, like, that's true. I was there, but, like, I swear I had dropped her off at school, and I was there by myself. And they're like, you know, good story, mm -hmm. my friend, but, like, you forgot the part where your kids saw you with Teresa. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's when he's like, okay, okay, like, I might have taken her to the mountains to see Bigfoot because I have this special Bigfoot connection, but... She took off while I was there, and I looked for her for two days, but I couldn't find her. I also don't believe this story. <laughs> right. They didn't believe it either, because they were like, hey, aren't you supposed to be, like, a proficient mountain man? Mm -hmm. So you're saying this, like, 16-year-old teen girl who's never been to that area was able to evade you in a location that you know a lot about like that doesn't say a lot for your skills highly unlikely and then he says okay you're right <laughs> i love how he just keeps being like yeah so that wasn't the truth you're, you're right you're right he says like okay so the last time i saw her was on the evening of june 2nd and i didn't tell you this before but we did see Bigfoot, and Bigfoot took her. And she ran off with this blonde female Bigfoot. Blonde female Bigfoot took her. So he did see her go off with a blonde. Yeah, it just happens to be Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Not a classmate. Um, and he says, like, I hate to tell you this, but also there's no way Sam slash Teresa is going to come back because she has this history of, like, a bad childhood and who would want to come back and also living with the bigfoot is like pretty awesome it's nice mm -hmm. i'm guessing i'm guessing amy what kind of story are you telling me i'm sorry so the suspect makes an agreement with the police like he is going to take them to where he last saw teresa which is the shut eye peak area so they head out there. It's pretty remote. And eventually the suspect takes them to like kind of a meadow edge. There's like a grove of trees. And in that is like a campsite. The fire pit is still smoldering. So has he been returning here? And this seems very questionable to me. I am not a wilderness person. So not an expert in this but if he says like he looked for her for two days that would bring us he says the last time he saw her was june 2nd so june 4th and we're at the very least around june 11th that seems like a very long time for a smoldering well campfire just science says that's impossible okay so even if you're not a wilderness person that needs to be pretty recent for it to still be smoldering right yeah so he's been returning or somebody's been staying there. They do find articles of clothing that are, are women's. So like a bra, t-shirt, that kind of thing. 
But most importantly, they find some Polaroids that look like they were taken at this campsite. And they feature a young woman who looks a lot like Teresa. And also there are photos of the suspect in front of the campfire playing guitar. I don't know. (laughs) Vanessa, I I know that you've been with, with your husband for quite a while, but has he ever played guitar at you? Actually, no. <laughs> well, he builds guitars, so oh, he's no. always just like sitting in front of me trying to like ask how certain guitars sound, and I am tone deaf, so I am no help, and he still does it. So yes, I've had the guitar played at me. Is it like the scene from Barbie? It's worse because it's real. <laughs> <laughs> this is partially why I never dated a musician in my life like i can't i cannot i cannot with the being played i can't i can't either it's yeah Yeah, i want to be supportive but i (laughs) I, want to be supportive but i just sometimes i don't know what to do right yeah so so we know that so so he was playing we think for Teresa. you know the the photos place both of them there so it kind of is setting it up as like friendly situation we've got here between them where he's playing guitar and she's taking pictures of him and he's taking pictures of her and they're living at this camp is that what i'm kind of like building up towards is there there doesn't seem to be necessarily anything immediately suspicious with those photos except for that she is a child and he is a grown man well yeah that that very glaring yeah, yeah detail okay um, now, this story is about to take a weird turn. What? I don't even understand how you can say that to me with a straight face at this point. It's taken many weird turns. Right. So what investigators eventually notice is that though the campsite certainly looks like the scene that they were at and everything is kind of in the same place, it's definitely not where they are standing. The kind of guess is that based on the background of what's going on with the mountain peaks is that this might be a good 20 miles away and that the campsite that they were standing in might be in fact a fabricated one like a recreated campsite this is a mock campsite it seems to be yes like a so that's why the fire was still smoldering maybe because he was like throwing this camp together last minute Right, but they like it matches the details in the. And then he Polaroids. even brought his Polaroids there and scattered them or did whatever. We don't know for certain, but that seems to be what is happening. Mm-hmm. Now, none of this is really making the local papers, but they launch a full-scale search on June twelfth and June thirteenth, looking for Teresa. They've got bloodhounds. They've got searchers on horseback. They've even called in and a helicopter with infrared cameras. And mind you, this is 1987, so that feels like a little high tech. It does. Eventually, they are able to find a men's shirt on a hill above the potentially mock campsite, but no Teresa. Just curious, have there been like other hikers around this mountain in this meantime? Is Is this frequently populated with hikers, I guess is what I'm asking? I don't know what the hiking lifestyle was like in 1987 but i do know that this peak is a frequently visited one now okay but like it seems that where he took them was not necessarily on the main trail like it's kind of like off that's my best guess based on the information it must be for nobody to have like come across either of these camps just 
hiking. So he is arrested. You know, mind you, he is the last person who is known to have been with her. He has taken her to another location. So he is charged with felony child stealing. Child stealing? Mm-hmm. Is that a charge? I didn't know that it was. It sounds made up, but... It does. Shouldn't it just be kidnapping? Right. But child stealing. It's technically right. He pleaded innocent and he was released. And this release seems maybe accidental because they very quickly take him back into custody again. And he is held in the Fresno County Jail and his bail is set at $30,000. So in the meantime, we're still searching for Teresa, right? Right. So newspaper reports... What they say is that the search for her has become sporadic. So, like, occasionally checking for her or asking hikers to be on the lookout for her, but not, like, the active full-scale search that was launched before. Okay, and we didn't... Did we find the other camp, the actual one that we think is the main camp? It does not seem so. Okay. So, in early October 1987, so several months after Teresa was last seen... The suspect's trial is about to start in early October. So he's facing those charges of child stealing when suddenly, like three days before, he is let out. Why? There's this big deal that the deputy district attorney, Elvois Turner, makes asking the judge, Judge James Artes, to dismiss the charges of child stealing because they want to avoid an issue of double jeopardy later if they find Teresa's body and want to try him for murder. Okay, so they have a reason. I guess, but like double jeopardy is, you know, you can't be tried for the same crime twice, but child stealing and homicide, like are two a murder things. are two different things. Like, you know, I'm not an expert in this again, uh, but I did watch that movie with Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones, Double Jeopardy, and that that doesn't check out for me. <laughs> Education through movies. I watched it so long ago that I haven't retained the facts of it. <laughs> I need a refresher. Refresher. What did you learn today? To watch more movies. To watch more movies. So he's released. There's some promises that, like, in the future, they might be able to reinstate those charges of child stealing. You kill me a little inside every time you say child stealing. But obviously what they're hoping for is, like, a charge of murder. But they never find Teresa's body, so he is never charged with murder. And they never reinstate those charges of child stealing. So we still absolutely don't know what happened to Teresa. No. In 1992, on the five-year anniversary of Teresa being missing, they do an interview with her uncle John, who we haven't heard from in a while. He does it for the paper, The Fresno Bee, and he says that he emphasizes that he was very close to Teresa, and he's quoted as saying, man, she's dead or been sold into slavery. No one could have gone that long and not got in touch with their family. Why would he go for that route? Like, dead maybe, but sold into slavery? Like, that's a weird turn, too. That's really a weird thing to say. Right. He also says his gut feeling is that Teresa is, in fact, dead. But he already said the other part, which makes me think that he's involved. There has been some speculation over time. Like, does he have some involvement or not? You know... Did they traffic her? You know, there are... 
There's just so much going on in this story. But I mean, I think like one of his, John, one of his girlfriends says, like called him like an evil man. And we do know that he has like this history or at least an accused history of sexual abuse against Teresa. We know that he was dating underage girls. I don't know. It's a bad situation, but his quote like takes this major turn. Right. Is anybody thinking that possibly like the suspect brought her into the woods and then John scooped her up and and then trafficked her that way? That doesn't seem to be the case, but there is some speculation that maybe the suspect and John have had some sort of agreement. It's a yucky story. Mm-hmm. In 1998, the suspect passed away at 54 of severe coronary heart disease. Now, possibly his daughter, I mean, it's a Facebook post, so you always take it with a grain of salt. She has like made a post defending her father saying that like, yes, her father had exercised poor judgment, particularly with underage girls. Yes, mm-hmm. drug use, but like that does not necessarily make him a murderer. Which is true, but it doesn't necessarily make him not. Like, at this point, what's the difference? Like, (laughs) the guy is not good. No. Well, first off, I wish we knew more about Teresa herself, because I feel like I didn't really get to know her too much. And it's just, there doesn't seem to be information out there, is there? Right. I mean, like, if you really want to, you know, earlier I mentioned Mary Shotwell Little and how much we know about her before she went missing. And that's largely because she was involved in a lot of things. And then her story stays in the papers and gets revisited over and over and over because she had family members who were really like making that happen. When you talk about someone like Teresa, there aren't those people to push her story out into the the spotlight. So we don't get that kind of coverage of her. There's nobody keeping her alive beyond just her disappearance. Right. Yeah. And that's sad. Yeah, I mean, the book, the author Jay O'Connell, he he does a lot of interviews with her oldest sister, Yolanda. But you also have to consider that Yolanda was living with her great-grandmother through most of her childhood. So that's even kind of a distancing factor as well. Yolanda, you know, she said that she had been asked to submit her DNA to see if a body that they found in an orchard was actually Teresa. Um, it ended up not being a match. But it's clear that investigators are still like trying to make a connection for Teresa and trying to solve her case. What do you think the odds are of us ever actually knowing what happened to Teresa? You know, the location that he says that he brought her to, should I, like, that's a, a really dense forested area. That's even assuming that he brought her there. It's also possible he had other mining claims in different locations. So did he bring her to one of those locations? I don't know what a mining claim is. It's basically like they own that property for those rights to any mining that happens there. Okay. So there's a reason I don't know. Right. Prior to Teresa going missing, he had actually taken another teenage girl to one of those locations. He convinced her to go out with him. The thing that saved her, not that, you know, that what happened to Teresa would have happened to her, but like she actually brought two male friends with her. So he invited her on his own and she was like, let me bring my friends. Good move. Right. I mean, she was a teenager and those friends were in their 30s. So I have oh, no. questions there too. No. But at the very least, like there was some knowledge that like, hey, this guy has is a little 
off and we should bring someone along. So is she, is Teresa in the shut-eye region? Is she in a different region? Who knows? But I do know, like, you know, we're talking about mountainous areas, a lot of different, like, pockets of space. Do I think that Teresa is, as the suspect said, living happily with Bigfoot? No. No, I do not. Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, Madrigal of the Sierra Nevadas, read by Lauren Ash. Lauren is a gifted actor-comedian who can currently be seen in the hit ABC comedy, Not Dead Yet. She is best known for her role as the fan favorite, Dina, in all six seasons of NBC's Superstore. Additional film and television credits include Another Period, Super Fun Night, Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2, Lars and the Real Girl, and The Disaster Artist. She has also lent her voice to the roles of Scorpia in the Netflix animated series She-Ra and the Princess of Power, as well as Diane in the Netflix animated series Chicago Party Ant. Lauren has been the recipient of a Canadian Screen Award, seven Davy Awards including People's Choice Podcast for her podcast True Crime and Cocktails, six Canadian Comedy Awards, and two nominations for Canadian Comedy Person of the Year. Madrigal of the Sierra Nevadas. There's a colonnade of trees straight to the peak of Shut Eye, but the girl and man take to where the forest pinches close. Her feet never leave the bed of moss, but she still cannot navigate the liquid green alone without fear of falling. The man stops and grabs a leaf and a single brown hair caught in a sapling cleft. She remembers her childhood book, one with a picture of an ape-like creature teetering on two legs his head turned back. She remembers his face set in sorrow, the moment before tears stained his dark fur. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, 
painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.